Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Chad Randall at Life Story Church. We are a grassroots church located in the heart of the Bellevue community in Nashville, Tennessee. Our services are streamed live on Facebook and YouTube every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. We would love for you to join us. Now here's Pastor Chad Randall. Tonight we're going to continue, as I mentioned, through Revelation chapter 6. The chapter brings us the iconic and legendary imagery of the four horsemen, a world-known symbol associated with the apocalypse uh, or the end of the world. Uh, The horsemen have been widely referenced in literature and have been the subject of different works of art the world over. And tonight you're going to learn why. You're going to find out why if you didn't already know. Uh, So if you're new in your uh, faith walk, if you're new in your journey of studying the Word of God, I'm so glad that you're here all the more. So so get a notepad ready, because we're going to cover a lot of ground today, okay? Before I jump right back into uh, chapter 6, where we left off last week, uh, I want to give you guys a little bit of a refreshing on where we have... uh, where we have been on the journey of our study through Revelation. We started this sermon series actually probably, gosh, I don't know, Andrew, was it last summer that we started this series with the letters to the churches? And, and I had intended just to cover the letters to the churches, but once we got to Revelation chapter 4 and 5 and into the throne room, it became uh, very evident that uh, uh, the Holy Spirit wanted us just to keep going and move through this uh, scripture and this text that honestly is uh, left untouched by much of the church. So uh, what an honor to do so. So we're going to do some digging tonight. So you'll need a pen and a paper. Hopefully you'll uh, take some notes. If you're watching this on your iPhone, you can always do the screenshot. I also am famous for whenever I'm watching and studying something, a teaching. If Even if I'm watching it on my TV, I'll take my cell phone and take a picture of the TV. Amber will tell you I do that stuff all the time. So, But we're going to cover a lot of ground, but uh, not so much ground that it'll be overwhelming. Okay, so I want to start I want to start by going back to kind of give you uh, some insight on where we've been, especially if you're just tuning in and you haven't been with us uh, for the last several months on this study. Uh, Can I see this first picture? Right off the bat, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, the Holy Spirit gives us uh, an outline for what we're about to study. Isn't that good of God to do that? He says in uh, verse 19, uh, he says, write the things which thou hast seen. And that's chapter one. So we see the vision that Christ is giving John in chapter one, where he says, write the things that you have seen, that's past, right? Write the things which are, that's present. And he's speaking about this, the seven churches, the letters to the churches, as we mentioned, as we studied through uh, all seven of them. And then he said, and the things which shall be hereafter. So if we look at the, this one verse 19, and we look at this uh, within the context of breaking things apart, as we love to do when we go through the scripture, we find that really, as we studied in uh, chapter 4, verse 1, uh, all of a sudden, John is in the throne room of God. He's in the throne room of God. And from that point forward, all, all the way through uh, 4 through 22, the rest of the book, that's after, hereafter, metatauta, means hereafter. So the things that were, the things that are, the churches, and the things that will be hereafter from that, which I believe is a type and shadow of the rapture event, moving forward into the rest of Revelation. So 
where we've been, uh, let's see this next graphic, this next outline, where we've been in chapter one, just mentioned it briefly. That was the setup where we received that divine outline from the Holy Spirit. Chapters two and three, that was our letters to the churches uh, that we got so much out of that incredible study. And chapters four and five, the throne room of God, where we found the elders were there and the scroll that was in the hand of God the Father, who would be worthy to take the scroll out of it and who would be worthy to break open those seals? Only Jesus Christ who was worthy. So that's that whole incredible scene that we saw there. Now where we are going moving forward, we're right here at Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, all the way through 22, yes, but specifically through chapter 19, it's, it's all about the seven-year tribulation period that is known as the time of Jacob's trouble. And I've said this a, a number of times, and I'll just keep saying it. A lot of times, uh, us Gentile believers, we get confused about where we fit, where America fits, or into Bible prophecy, into uh, the time of the tribulation period. And, and one thing that we must understand is that the time of Jacob's trouble is about Jacob. It's not the time of Chad's trouble, right? It's the time of Israel's trouble. Israel is the focal point, not the United States, okay? Israel is the focal point of this uh, uh, time in history that is honestly spoken of more than any other time, period of time in the Bible. So uh, as we look at that, where we're going, we're going into 6 through 19. And can I see that graphic one more time? Check out the note at the bottom. I don't want that to be lost in you. Note where the church is at this point, okay? We're starting chapter 6, but where was the church? We covered that at length in chapters 4 and 5. I encourage you to go back and watch those episodes, okay, if you missed them, because the church is in the throne room, the elders, the, the priests and kings, those who have been saved by Jesus Christ, okay? They're in the throne room already where Jesus is also. That's where we arrive at chapter 6. So moving forward into chapter 6, we encounter the beginning of another structure in the text, uh, which is, I love to point out these uh, structures in the text because to me, they're fingerprints. They're they're fingerprints of God, truly more than anything else. I've, we talk about all the time, you can read the Bible at face value and there's truth there and God, God means what he says and says what he means, but there's also an underlying meaning of the text as well, which is the remez layer. There's always more than just on the surface level, right? So uh, this is one of those structures that we see in Revelation that you know, it could not be coincidental. It could not be accidental. This is a fingerprint of God. So I can see, can I see that heptatic structure? There's a heptatic structure throughout the, re, through, through, from chapter six all the way through what we're about to see. We're about to read through with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The four horsemen are the first four seals, the fifth and the sixth seal. Then we're going to see a little uh, parentheses, a break. Uh, uh, right before the seventh seal. That break is actually chapter seven, but I'll talk more about that a little bit later. The seventh seal is opened up, and that just leads to uh, seven trumpets, a break before the seventh trumpet, and that seventh trumpet just leads to bowls of wrath and a, a brief break before the final bowl of wrath. So you see 
777. You see this structure, guys, don't you? So there, as we read, we're going to revisit that so you can see it as we read as well. I'm a visual learner too. So um, <clears throat> let's, uh, with that, let's just jump back into chapter six, shall we? Okay. Last week we traveled an entire two verses. We <laughs> We, we were excited to get into this study about the horsemen of the apocalypse, and we got about two verses deep uh, before we discussed a very interesting theory about who the first horseman quite possibly could be. Uh, if you missed last week, uh, last week's teaching, I encourage you to go back and watch that, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, uh, chapter, uh, or part one, uh, covering chapter six, verses one and two. Uh, because that's important, okay? Whoever this guy is, this first horseman that we find, this white horse rider in verses 1 and 2, whoever he is, be, be it whether he is Elijah or be it whether he is the Antichrist, we know that he isn't on the scene. Consider everything we, we've just said. He's not on the scene until after the church is in the throne room, okay? If we get confused on that, it can be, well confusing, right? So the church is in the throne room. Could he still be Elijah with the church in the throne room? Of course, because who is Elijah after all, but a prophet to the Jews. So uh, that he can still be Elijah, okay, without, uh, uh, without him being a minister to the church per se, okay, the Gentile church especially, the believing church before the tribulation, let me say it that way, okay? So let's reread verses 2 and 3 just to quickly revisit the possibilities, okay? Let's read ver uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Let's read. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown, and was given to him. A crown was given to him, and he went out uh, conquering and to conquer. Okay? I want to make this point again. We made it pretty well last week, but let me just say it because we're revisiting as we move forward. We're going to get through all the rest of this chapter tonight, guys, just so you know. Uh, the white horse rider is not Jesus, okay? That has been a popular misconception. He's not Jesus. Dominion theologists paint him to be Jesus. They want him to be Jesus because they want uh, a reasoning to go out and conquer the earth themselves, conquer wickedness themselves, and make the earth ready for Jesus to come back, and that's just not uh, prophetically accurate, okay? He's not Jesus, okay? Jesus, if we remember just reading, he's the one who took the scroll. He's in the throne room. He's in the throne room. He continues to be an intercessor for those who are on earth, okay? The rider of the white horse, as we just read, he has a bow. He has a bow, but he has no arrows. A bow is symbolic of covenant. I mentioned this last week. A lot of times, uh, tribes, Indian tribes, when two chiefs would meet, they would bring their bows, and if they made a deal, an accord, a covenant, they would bury their bows as a symbol of there being no war, but there being peace, okay? Uh, people commonly suggest that the fact that there's no arrows in this white rider, you know, uh, it could indicate deception. It could uh, suggest the look of power without actually having any ammo. Uh, some draw a correlation uh, of this bow to a rainbow, even. Uh, which, interestingly, is another covenant, okay? The word used here 
and in Genesis chapter 9, verse 13, are the same, okay? So, uh, some people, like, uh, some, sometimes, you know, if you, we, we uh, dig a little bit deeper into this context, into this idea, uh, some things, we find some interesting stuff, let me just say that. Genesis chapter 9, verse 13, says this, I set my rainbow, and that's the same word there, that's the same word there, Quaseth. Uh, Quaseth, a weapon, also rainbow, in the clouds, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Okay, so interesting. We can you know, people have all of these different conjectures and ideas on what the bow could mean. What it could be symbolic of? Is it talking about a rainbow? Well, it's not talking about an iris. That's not the word used there, right? It's not iris, but it is this word that is used in Genesis chapter nine, verse thirteen. So that's interesting. Okay. So, or maybe it's not about any of that. Let's just be honest, guys. We're trying to take this apart ourselves with our limited understanding, praying that the Holy Spirit lead us. Maybe, maybe the point could just be about the bow. Maybe it is just about the bow. Maybe the point is the covenant. You know, the bow is also, uh, the bow is also a symbol of the hunter, and some people, some great scholars, believe that uh, this could be pointing to Nimrod because Nimrod was the hunter, so could he's got a bow here, but no arrows. But he's got the bow, and is the bow symbolic of the hunter? Could it be Nimrod? Uh, Nimrod was the world's first uh, typology of the Antichrist, okay? Widely, widely believed to have been a type and shadow of the Antichrist, the first to be on uh, the face of the earth in Babylon, okay? Uh, and what is, keeping this in mind, this idea of bow and covenant, what is the Antichrist supposed to uh, kick off these seven years of tribulation with? Now, let me uh, bring up a scripture just to bring a little insight onto the matter. Daniel chapter 8, verse 25 reads, And through his policy... Also, he shall cause craft. That's deceit. That word uh, craft is, means deceit uh, in the, in the uh, Hebrew here. So he will cause craft, deceit, to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes. Who's the prince of princes? Jesus, right? but he shall be broken without hand. And then Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 says this, and he shall confirm, come on now, you, know, you uh, prophecy students, you've heard this before, he shall confirm the covenant. Confirm right there, that more accurate word for that would be enforce the covenant with many. So this is an interesting point, guys, because if he's going to enforce a covenant, that doesn't necessarily mean that this is some new peace deal that the, that the Antichrist has got to come up with. He may just be enforcing God's covenant with Israel, the, the covenant of the proper boundaries of the land. This is not necessarily a new peace deal, okay? So he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, okay? That's a seven-year period. And in the midst of that week, three and a half years in, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. 
in the temple, and for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So, so we spent time last week looking at this possibility that this white horse rider could quite, quite he could quite possibly be uh, the prophet Elijah. Well, I want to look at the other side of this coin here, okay? I don't want to be, I want to be a student. We want to be students. We don't want to be dogmatic about one side, especially without looking at another possibility. So let, let me take a look at some Old Testament allusions about who this Antichrist is supposed to be, and could it quite possibly fit the billing for our guy in Revelation chapter 6, verse 1 and 2? Well, the seed of the serpent... He's referred to as the seed of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Why do they call him that? Well, it's uh, from that scripture. Uh, uh, the seed, of the, uh, the, seed uh, of the serpent will battle the seed of the Messiah uh, throughout eternity. The seed of the woman, right? Messianic foreshadowing there. He's known as the idle shepherd in Zechariah chapter 11. And that, that doesn't mean he's sitting around on his hands. That means like an idol, like a pagan god, false god, idol shepherd. Okay, he's known as the little horn in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8. He's also referred to as the prince that shall come in Daniel chapter 9. And there's many more, but for tonight's purposes, we want to try to stay on time. There's also allusions to him in the New Testament. Can we take a look at that? Here are some New, New Testament allusions to him. Referred to as the beast in Revelation 11 and 13. False prophet in Revelation 13. Antichrist, really a better way to say Antichrist would be pseudo-Christ, in the place of Christ. Okay, uh, The vicar of Christ would be another way to say that when you transliterated it into Latin, which is where a lot of people get the idea that... Um, the Pope would be the Antichrist. Certainly the, the reformers in the 1500s believed the Pope was the Antichrist uh, for many other reasons, more than this. But the Pope refers to himself as the vicar of Christ in the place of Christ, Christ on earth. In any case, pseudo-Christ in 1 John chapter 2, verse 22 is referred to as the lawless one in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. The man of sin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, and of course the one who comes in his own name in John chapter 5, verse 4 through 3. And this is really interesting when you do a word study because he comes in his own name, but Jesus came in the name of his father. And you know what? That was something that was always lost on me. Uh, it was always lost on me because, uh, well, what's the name of God? What is the name of the father? It's not just God. He has a name, right? Yahweh, Yehovah, Yah right? Yah, Yehovah, Yahweh. Uh, always starting with that initial Yah, right? Well, what is Jesus's name? How is Jesus in the name of Yehovah? It was completely lost. I mean, I think it's lost so much of the church until you understand that, well, Jesus was Jewish. Yehovah is a Jewish name. Yeshua is his name. It means salvation. So Yahovah, Yahshua, you hear that Yah. It's in the name of his father he comes. So specifically, the Antichrist comes in his own name. And that's an identifier of the condition of his heart and his break from the father. Okay, And of course, he was also referred to as the son of perdition. He's got a few characteristics that we need to look out for as well. Can I see this next one? He'll be an intellectual genius. Daniel chapter 7, verse 20, chapter 8. Ezekiel 28. It would have to be, wouldn't he? Wouldn't he? He'll be a persuasive order. 
be able to talk people into anything, I suppose, right? A shrewd politician. Uh, he'll be a financial genius. I mean, he, you know, he puts into place this one world monetary system, right? And he's the head of it, essentially. Uh, he'll be a, a forceful military leader as well. Forceful military leader. He'll be a powerful community organizer, right? <laughs> powerful organizer revelation. He'll have to be. He literally organizes all the nations of the world into one league of nations, okay? As Woodrow Wilson would love to refer to it as. Uh, he will also be a unifying religious man. Now, the false prophet of Revelation, which we'll get to that, he uh, has a lot to say and a lot to do with this organizing the religion piece of this, which kind of leads a lot of people to think that perhaps it's Pope Francis as well being the, the false prophet, considering uh, work he's been doing with Chrislam and his one world order over the last couple years. In any case, in any case... Uh, we also have a physical description of him that comes to us in Zechariah chapter 11, verse 17. Let's read that, shall we? You want to know what he looks like? You guys want to know what the Antichrist is going to look like? We have got something for you here. Zechariah 11, verse 17. Woe to the idle shepherd. There it is again. That's not doesn't mean he is... Guys, does Satan or anything demonically influenced just sit around on their hands? I, th I think they're pretty active, don't you? Woe to the idol shepherd. That's a false worshipped, falsely worshipped idol. Woe to the idol shepherd that leaveth the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean dried up. And his right eye shall be utterly darkened. So what do we see here? We see a mark on the, uh, a mark on the right hand, right eye, right? This kind of is reminiscent of, uh, which we'll get to in Revelation as we study moving forward, the mark of the beast, which will be on either on the right hand or arm or on the forehead, right? Could it be that the mark that you take for him is somehow related as a sympathy, uh, worship, and allegiance symbol tied to honoring him and his wounds? I don't know. It's an interesting thought, though. Uh, to be sure, though, I've had a number of people uh, talk to me about this vaccine over the last year and say, what, can I, what if I get the vaccine and it's the mark of the beast? I'm telling you, when it, the Bible is very clear, the word is very clear, Revelation is very clear that when you take the mark, okay, it, you're disqualified from salvation, okay? Not only does it do, do something to you spiritually, perhaps even physically, that makes you irredeemable. I don't know. We could really go down a rabbit hole with that, uh, which we've done before. But uh, in regards to, does it affect you DNA-wise, whatnot? But one thing that we do know for sure about the mark of the beast is this. You take it intentionally. You take the, Your purpose for taking it is to pledge allegiance to that world dictator to the antichrist to that man that's bringing such peace and you they will just love him and think he's bringing peace and he's confirmed a peace deal with many and it's going to be great the world is going to unite under this guy that's why he's going to have to have all of these different skill sets uh, and characteristics right but that mark you, you can't inadvertently receive it it will be a pledge of allegiance of sorts okay and then that'll get we'll get into that and 
how that ties in and correlates with uh, finance and what you won't be able to buy, sell, or trade without it and all that stuff as well. But we'll get there in a, in a couple of weeks, okay? So anyway, <laughs> considering everything we talked about last week, are you with me? Considering everything that we talked about last week, as far as who this white horse rider could be, we were pretty extensive into our option A last week. Here's our option B. Who's, who Does this sound like our guy? Does this sound like the white horse rider? Okay, go back and rewatch the last half of last week's message and tell me what you think, okay? If it is, if this is our guy, if the white horse rider here, once that seal is broken, signs this covenant and heads out, okay? Uh, you know, he, the white would indeed have to uh, represent his deceit, okay? The, the rider hasn't conquered yet because he goes out to conquer, uh, but conquer is also translated as simply overcome, Okay, so don't let that be lost on you as well. Okay, this is a really an interesting study. He overcomes the world. Well, who else come, overcomes the world? Well, the Holy Spirit, and we as believers, right? So is he a bad guy? Is he a good guy? Uh, this is pretty compelling either way, okay? Does the opening of the first seal release the Antichrist to begin his satanic assignment, or is it the sending of Elijah to the Jewish people? I mean, they keep a seat at the table for him at the Passover every year. Both are compelling arguments. Both are, are plausible. And I'll be honest with you guys, I lean one way. I do. But I find both possibilities very fun to explore. So I'm not going to tell you which way I'm leaning because I want you to do the study yourself. Whoever he is, though, this rider does not actually cause war. But he prepares the way for the next seal. And that brings us to Revelation chapter 6, verse 3 and 4. Let's read. When he opened the second seal, Jesus, can't be the writer. Remember, he's opening the seals here. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see another horse. And keep in mind, throughout the Bible, horses are often uh, symbols of judgment. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. Sounds pretty straightforward to me, doesn't it? I mean, a sword is used for hand-to-hand -hand, hand -hand combat here, okay? Uh, think of invading armies, civil wars, in fierce hand-to-hand -hand combat. That's what we're looking at here, guys. That's what we're talking about. This rider takes peace from the earth, all right? Let's keep reading verse 5 and 6, Revelation 5 and 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold, a black horse. This is a little bit more interesting. Black is symbolic of famine elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, Lamentations, chapter 4. Lamentations, chapter 5. Jeremiah, chapter 14. This black horse. Behold a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarters of barley for a denarius, 
and do not harm the oil and wine. That is interesting, isn't it? So this represents, guys, this no doubt represents economic disruption. Economic, the scales, right? The scales and everything. Uh, the problem uh, here is not as much famine as it is inflation. This is a monetary issue. A denarius represents a daily wage here, okay? Uh, a full day's wage was one denarius. So basically, you're getting a loaf of bread for a whole day's work. And then, this odd little comment that gets thrown on the back here, but do not harm the oil and the wine, okay? It's interesting to me because this oil, in the midst of you having to do a day's work just for a loaf of bread, you've got these symbols of decadence here. But hey, don't harm the symbols of decadence, okay? Oil and wine. Well, it's interesting. You know, oil uh, is needed for uh, the lighting of the manure in the temple. Wine is needed for the celebratory feasts of the Lord and this and that, right? But I think this also points to uh, uh, class warfare. Honestly, it, what we're seeing here is a distance between rich and the poor, okay? Uh, the finer things here are still available. So we've got a worldwide famine going on, yet we still have the finer things available. You know, the interesting thing about uh, famines, if you ever study world history and you study the famines uh, throughout world history, uh, the interesting thing is that they're usually caused by politics, not scarcity. It's not, they usually doesn't happen because all of the crops died, right? It's usually caused uh, by politics, you know, political expediency always, keep this in mind, political expedience always leads to the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. And, you know, that's what we're seeing here. Uh, that's, that's what we're seeing here in verses 5 and 6 here. Now, I'll give you some relevant homework, by the way, uh, uh, in regards to this. Read, read Amos chapter 8, okay? Because we don't have time to do it tonight, and we don't have time to do it as a part of this study. But Amos chapter 8, it talks about uh, a different kind of famine that, you know, it isn't, it isn't necessarily in view here, but I think it's really relevant for us and relevant for the age that we live in. In Amos chapter 8, he speaks of a famine of the Word of God. And uh, yeah, how many of you guys know that when people are starving, they'll eat anything? Uh, Chuck Missler said this of, of the false teachers of the day. And I love it because I think that we are in a famine in the world today. We're in a famine of the word of God and people are starving for the truth. I always love to say, you know, people in your community, right around you, just here in Bellevue, people are thirsting to death for the water that you have if you just give them a drink, right? And that is the gospel, the freedom, the liberty that is in Jesus Christ. Amen? Well, this world, I tell you what, it is, it is in a spiritual famine. And when people are starving, they'll eat anything. And this could be the reason why we find ourselves in the spiritual position that we are today, honestly. Many are feasting, and many are feasting uh, at the table of emotional gratification, 
They're feasting uh, at the table of emotional gratification. In the absence of sound doctrine and exegetical uh, teaching uh, in the pulpits, they feast simply for emotional gratification, even to the end of embracing bizarre, hyper-spiritual, even Gnostic in origin behaviors and teachings. And we see it on YouTube and whatnot, and we're like, what in the world am I watching? That guy's barking like a dog and running in a circle, and he's in church and thinks he's got the Holy Ghost. What is going on? Right? That person's convulsing. The Holy Spirit, guys, remember this. The Holy Spirit is a gentleman, Okay. You'll not, find, you'll not find that stuff in the Word of God, okay? The Holy Spirit does not take over your body and cause you to do things. It doesn't take control from you, okay? In any case, let's keep going. Uh, verses 7 and 8. Revelation 6, 7 and 8. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold... A pale horse. Now this is interesting because that word pale there is the word chloris in the Greek. Chloris. And it means green. Sick green. Like as much as... I don't need to go through a list of things that are green and sick. Right? When you're sick and things are green. Right? That's no good. All right? That's what it's trying to describe here. Chloris. That... Chloris horse rider, okay? Let's go back to the text. And behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death and Hades. So we've got two here. We've got Death and Hades. Well, Death is bad enough, but what is Hades? In Greek, that word is Sheol. Uh, It's a temporary reserve, in other words. It it appears one other place in Luke chapter 16, when that rich man, remember the story, the rich man is begging Abraham for just a drop of water? He's He's in Sheol, okay? So what we're seeing here with death and Hades riding on this horse is death of the body, but also death of the soul here. So death completely, all right? Uh, And death and Hades followed with him, okay? Let's keep reading. Uh, And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth. That's a lot, guys. To kill with the sword with hunger. So hunger, famine, right? With death and by the beasts of the earth. Interesting point here, guys. I don't want this to be lost on us. We read this, we initially think, wow, the lions and the tigers and the bears, oh my. Lions and tigers and bears. Am I? They're going to get us, right? Well, maybe. Yeah. Well, we've been seeing some. Uh, we've been seeing some of that. I think there's even some TV shows on the Discovery Channel when animals turn bad or something like that or whatever they call those shows, right? We need to keep in mind that you know some of the most dangerous beasts of the earth, you know, they're actually microscopic, and they are still creation. They are still beasts. Okay. So this could be. Uh, pestilence and disease as well. Okay, think pale horse rider. I mean, a fourth of the world will die here, guys. A fourth of the world will die. Uh, you know, the great diseases of the world, they're not gone. They're not gone. Uh, they didn't just disappear. I know that modern uh, uh, medical students and schools would love to tell you, oh yeah, no, we just, we did away with that, you know. All of those old illnesses. The plague's gone. We, we, we fixed it. No, no, you didn't. 
we got clean water, right? There's not trash and rats in our street anymore, okay? So that fixed the plague, for starters, okay? But the plague didn't leave. These diseases, they're still here. They're still here. They're just dormant, okay? Um, I mean, when they give you the flu shot, if you take the flu shot, <clears throat> last time I took the flu shot was probably about, I don't know, many, many, many years ago. And what happened to me, I got the flu right away. Why? Because in the flu shot is a dormant uh, disease of the flu, okay? Uh, so there are a lot of different microscopic beasts that we could be looking at that are in during this tribulation period that could just be uh, biding their time and God could be waiting to use. You know, diseases spread pretty quickly across the world now because of international travel. Haven't we seen that with the COVID stuff? We think. <clears throat> Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 21. Let me read you this. For thus saith the Lord God, how much more when I send my four sore judgments upon Jerusalem, the sword and the famine and the, the noisome beast and the pestilence to cut off from it man and beast, okay? So even back here in Ezekiel, we see this type and shadow, all right? We see it's coming. The same things that he's telling us are coming in uh, right here in Revelation chapter 6. This was a, a prophecy that was given to Ezekiel before it was even revealed to John. So it's coming, guys. These are the horsemen. So with that, those are our, hor our four horsemen of the apocalypse. If you've ever been wondering what they are and where they come from, where all of the folklore comes from, it's right here. But there's not just four seals, are there? And the chapter's not done yet. So let's break open seal number five. Seal number five, the cry of the martyrs, the first martyrs, all right? Uh, Revelation chapter six, verse nine through 11. Let's read that. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, that's interesting, under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Now this is, this is interesting because this word testimony here, a better translation of it would actually be witness. The word is martis in the Greek, and that's where we get our word for martyrs, by the way. That's where we get our word for martyrs. So uh, they were slain for the word of God, which, by the way, is a title of Christ. So they were killed for Jesus' sake. They were killed for Jesus' sake for, the, for their witness. They were martyred. Mm. Verse 10. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Here we hear the cry of the suffering throughout the ages, church. Those who suffered at the hands of the Catholic Church those who suffered at the hands of the Nazis, those who, who suffered at the hands of whatever name you want to give, give it, who, whatever people group it was inflicting suffering, whether it was the Chinese, it's the Chinese uh, CCP today inflicting pain and suffering on the, the Muslims in China right now, wherever it's happening, right? Wherever, but this is specifically obviously about the uh, people of God, okay? People that, that, uh, of, of Yahweh. People who have 
been who have suffered for Jesus' sake, okay? Throughout history, throughout history, here we hear their cries throughout the ages. Here we hear their cries. Verse 11, then a white robe, then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So here we are, we're in the tribulation period, and still there's going to be people martyred. So that is obviously speaking of tribulation saints, because the church is in the throne room, but people will come to Jesus. I believe, and I think it's apparent as we study this text, that people will come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ during this tribulation period, because the seals are broken, the tribulation begins, where's the, where's the bride, the church, already in the throne room. So, but how are there then, how are there then saints on earth? Well, I believe there will be a lot of people that were scoffers, they might even been church people, but they never put their faith and their trust and their salvation in the finished work of the cross, okay? Maybe they didn't truly understand uh, a relationship with Jesus and what it, oh, what it means, right? Or, or maybe, they, may, maybe they heard it, didn't want it, they just wanted to live their own lives for themselves. They have praying grandmothers, praying mothers, fathers, brothers, right? And all of a sudden the rapture happens and the tribulation period begins and all of a sudden they know, holy cow, I know what this is because I've heard it my whole life. I think, uh, and then there will be the two witnesses as well. We'll get to that later, which I, I don't want, I better not get into that. We'll get to that later as we move through the text, but there will be two witnesses testifying during this time for this first three and a half year period, two witnesses testifying that Jesus Christ is Lord and they will save many. So we know that salvation will happen still during this uh, period of time. Um, so we're, we're going to wait until that time is completed, he says here, to finish up that scripture. But this, one thing that stands out to me here is right all the way back, can we go back to verse 9? Can we look at that? Remember it said, when he opened the fifth seal, what did that say? Do we have verse 9, Eva? I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word. Okay? Under the altar. That's really interesting to me because guess what? In ancient sacrifices, you can come back to me now. In ancient sacrifices, uh, blood sacrifices that were done. Right? And we've been through all that and why and all, and all that and whatnot. But even in pagan cultures, blood sacrifices were done. When they were done, blood was poured all around the base of the altar. Okay? And as they did their, the sacrificing on the altar, even, the blood would pour down through the base. So that just speaks to all of the blood that has been shed for the name of Jesus throughout humanity's history, Christianity's history. Yeah, it's just really, uh, I don't know, it's, it's powerful to me. It's a poignant uh, verse to me. Uh, this idea of avenging the blood of the saints. Can I see this next graphic? Let me see this next picture. Avenging the blood of the saints. We see it come up a number of times in Scripture, obviously right here in verse 10. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And then in verse 6, moving forward, we'll see in chapter 16, verse 6, For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worth, for they are worthy. Verse 17 
Chapter 17, verse 6, And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. That's who we're talking about here. This, uh, this woman is drunk on that blood that is uh, at the, saturating the ground at the base of the altar. It will be interesting to dig into that woman when we get to 17, huh? And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Verse 18, verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 20, Rejoice over her, thou Though heaven and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. So vengeance is coming. Verse 24 then. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. And chapter 19, lastly, verse 2. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great horror which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. Well, well, church, the opening of the sixth seal releases a tremendous, a tremendous upheaval of nature as we move forward. Okay? So that was our fifth seal, the cry of the martyrs. The, the sixth seal, I hope you're, you have your, your uh, seat belts ready, all right? So buckle up. Here we go. Chapter uh, 6, verse 12. Let's read. I looked, and he opened the sixth seal. And behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sack, sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Verse 14. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. And quite, these are, I mean, visual. I hope visualize this as I'm reading, guys. It's, how incredible would this be to see? Uh, the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island was moved from its place. You know, is this a metaphor or is this really going to happen? You know, I tend to believe that the Lord says what he means and means what he says. And if you understand, if you begin to understand that you can't fully understand this world that we live in and how it operates dimensionally, okay? Look into some of the work that they're doing at the Large Hadron Collider in CERN and the work that they're doing with dark matter and stuff like that. There is more to this world than just we see more than meets the eye and experience on a daily level. There's, there's matter between our fingers even, as a matter of fact, okay? There's dark matter all around us. I mean, dimensionally speaking, we haven't scratched the surface on what we understand yet. So when we start talking about the sky receding and being rolled up and mountains being moved, none of this is going to be difficult for the Lord, you have to understand, okay? So here we see uh, some cosmic upheavals are happening here. It's not, not the first time, though. Can I see this next graphic? We've seen this prophesied, this moment prophesied throughout, uh, throughout the uh, uh, breadth of the Bible. The sun became black as sackcloth. We heard that all the way back in Isaiah 13, uh, verse 10, talking about the day of the Lord, right? <clears throat> Talked about that a couple of weeks ago at, on Sunday, at Sunday service. Uh, the sun became a, a black as sackcloth. Joel chapter 2, we find it there. The moon became as blood. <clears throat> so, so the light that the moon gives is blocked out by something. Is this a, simple, is this a blood moon? 
quite possibly. Is it something more than that? Quite possibly. Anyways, we see that uh, we see this uh, reference made in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10 again. Isaiah chapter 24, 23. Joel chapter 2, 51. Matthew 24, we'll touch back on that in just a second. Stars fell to earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs. We saw that in Matthew 24, which we're seeing here in Revelation as well. The sky and the heavens departed as a scroll when it is rolled together. That, we just read it here in Revelation. It was also mentioned in Isaiah as well. So, a lot of cosmic upheavals coming during this time. Verse 15. Verse 15. We're going to 17. We're almost, we're, we're going to finish this up. Verse 15. And the kings of the earth, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, what did they do? They hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. This is so interesting. It's interesting because I've heard this. I've heard this forever, but something was lost on on me until recently when I was studying this, and I discovered reading in Joshua that the book of Joshua, I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but it has a lot of similarities to Revelation and this seven-year period, tribulation period in Revelation. Can I see this next graphic? Let me show you a few of them. In Joshua, Joshua goes on a seven-year campaign against seven enemies. There were originally 10, but three of them were knocked down. So he's got seven left that he's fighting against, okay? During the battle of Jericho, he sent in what? Two witnesses to spy out the camp, didn't he? Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) There was also uh, seven trumpet events. Remember, they march around uh, Jericho. They march around uh, six times quiet, and then they blow the trumpet on the seventh time, and they did that same thing. They'd march around it, march around for seven days, seven trumpets, okay? Uh, there's a, so there's seven, a theme of seven trumpets there as well, just like we're going to read as we read forward into Revelation. Uh, the enemies of Joshua's confederated together under a leader in Jerusalem who went by the name Adonai Zedek, which means Lord of Righteousness, so presenting himself up as the Lord of Righteousness. He was ultimately then defeated by hailstones uh, uh, from heaven, or hailstones and fire from heaven. Pardon the typo, is a typo? No, just my typo here. Uh, hailstones and fire from heaven. And then, of course, there were signs in the sun and the moon and the stars in, in, in Jacob's time as well, if you remember the story of Joshua's or excuse me, Joshua, I'm saying Jacob, Joshua's long day, Joshua's long day, uh, which that is a whole other study. What could have caused the, the sun to hold its place? So possibly something cosmic, gravity related. In any case, at the end of this battle of, uh, of Joshua's, what did all the kings do? Well, they go and they hide in these caves until the armies went and got them all out of the caves. So they hid in the caves. And, we, and here we saw, see the same thing in verse 15. Then the, 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 the kings of the earth and the great men, they hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. In verse 16, let's go to verse 16. And then they said to the mountains and the rocks, 
fall on us, fall on us from, uh, and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Wow. Look at that, an acknowledging of who God Almighty is as they run for their lives. They're acknowledging. Verse 17, For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Who is able to stand? Don't let this be lost on you now, church, okay? Don't let this be lost on you. Here we are in chapter 6, and wrath is happening. Wrath is happening. So can the church be here? Okay? Remember 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 through 11. For God did not appoint us to wrath, Paul tells us. Okay? Remember that. And notice in Revelation uh, chapter 6, verse 16 here, which it was just before 17, mankind though, I don't want to move past this without pointing this out, but that wrath point is pretty important, okay? But that last part, verse 16, and they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Here they are, guys. Mankind, so stubborn, so stubborn, that even in the midst of its demise, it calls on nature still. It still calls on nature instead of the God of nature to put them out of their misery. Don't let that be lost on you either. You talk about being stubborn in mind uh, and having a hard heart. They're even calling out, save us from the wrath of the wrath of the lamb is coming. It's here. And what did they do? They call on the rocks. Oh, fall on us rocks. Rather than call out on the name of the Lord. That tells you all that you need to know about who they are, guys. Well, there we are. There we are. Then we get, uh, you know, we get a little break, a little breather, a little breather uh, before the seventh seal is broken. Do you guys see now why I began our, began our study? After studying all of these seals and all of the, the you know, we've got the earthquakes, we've got the, uh, uh, all of the different things happening, the cosmic things happening. You guys understand why we started with Matthew 24 last week a little bit more? Do you see the parallels? Uh, I hope you do. If, you're, if you don't, if you don't remember, let me give you this next graphic. Can I see this next one? This group of signs. There's a group of signs. We see that in Revelation chapter 6, all through chapter 6. This is why I was, you see Matthew, all through Matthew chapter 24. We could have read Luke chapter 21 as well. But the false Christ will come in 24, uh, Matthew 24 and in uh, 20, uh, Revelation chapter 6. There's wars, rumors of wars, right? Famines, famines, death, death, martyrs, martyrs, global chaos, global chaos, global chaos. Dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Sorry. I think that's a good place for us to stop uh, tonight, guys. Can I go to this next graphic just in uh, recapping everything we've been through tonight? This is our seven-sealed scroll um, graphic, courtesy of the Koinonia Institute. We talked about the white horse rider going out to overcome, to conquer, but he was doing so in the name of peace. Don't let that be lost on you. So he's doing it in the name of peace. So that's our big question. Is he doing it in the name of peace for the peace sake or is he deceptive? I'll leave that up to you. We talked enough about that the last two weeks. 
The Red Horse Rider was the second seal, the Black, the Famine was the third, the Pale, the Sick Green was the fourth, and then the Martyrs crying out the cosmic catastrophe and chaos that came with the sixth seal. Then there's going to be a little break, and I want you guys to notice this. Uh, we noticed this with the heptatic structure as well, that there's a break before the seventh seal is open. And that break is actually the entire chapter seven. So we're not going to get to a seal next week because we're going to be studying chapter seven next week before we can get to the seventh seal in chapter eight. This pattern will repeat itself with the seven trumpets as well. There will be a break before the seventh. Uh, and there will be a, a trumpet. And there will be a break before the seventh bowl. Okay, can I see that next picture, that heptatic structure? You see what I'm talking about? There's a, there's a parenthesis, a short break. And this is interesting, guys, because it parallels the letters to the seven churches. If you remember when we did that study, the churches that are still around today, they had a postscript in their promise to the overcomer. The seventh element of the outline was separated from the body of the text, okay? And so a breather was given in the text before the final statement. And we're seeing that here as well. So these are fingerprints of God, which are just so cool. I hope you think they're cool too. In chapter 7, as we study next week, we're going to see uh, the 144,000 that are sealed uh, on their foreheads to serve God. There will be 12,000 from each tribe of Israel, which makes up the whole 144,000. And we'll have a fun study uh, looking into all that, who they are, what they are, what it means, are their tribes missing, all of that fun stuff. We'll talk about it next week. So with that, guys, with every eye closed, every head bowed, if you're here this uh, tonight and you're, you're watching this, maybe you've tuned in because you're just curious about this kind of stuff and you've never studied Revelation, I hope, I truly hope uh, that we have been able to break it down and make it more palatable for you guys. And hopefully you've been able to understand it maybe more than you have before. It's not, Revelation is not something that we need to be scared of as believers, even new believers, okay? As a matter of fact, it's the only book of the Bible that promises, uh, gives a promise, a blessing to the reader and even anybody who hears it read. So if you just heard it read tonight, there's a special blessing for you because you heard it read. So uh, if we just are good Bereans and studying our text, we can, I mean, we spent, we spent a lot of time tonight in the Old Testament studying Revelation, didn't we? So the, the, the word is so rich. If we will just understand that, hey, there's some things that when we initially read, we're not going to understand, but that's why we study, and that's, that's the remez. That's why we look deeper, and as we look deeper, that's when the Word of God comes alive. So the, doing studies like this, boy, it really, it just never fails to come alive, does it? So anyway, uh, I hope that uh, you're inspired, you're encouraged, and I hope you enjoyed this study, and I hope that uh, a fire has been lit in your heart to, to dig deeper and deeper and find the Lord and His Word and let the Holy Spirit lead you. Always do this for me. When you study the Word of God, even maybe even especially when you do a study with somebody online on a podcast or a YouTube channel or something like that, pray that the Holy Spirit would give you discernment. So if the enemy has sown deception into it somehow or false teaching, that you'd be given an alert in your spirit. The Holy Spirit is always good on that stuff uh, to do that for us. So when that happens, then you can search it out and, and discover where something's off, if it is off. And I always say that for myself too. Don't take any of this just from me. 
follow follow up look into all this stuff for yourself that we're studying so uh, uh, the word of God will ultimately be uh, the one making the judgment call on what we're learning so in any case with that uh, let's pray guys Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for this time that we've gotten to be together, Lord. We ask that you just see the hearts and the minds, Father, that have been watching tonight and are lifting their hearts up to you right now, Lord. I pray that you continue to give us depth of knowledge and understanding and insight to your word, Lord. Lead us into all truth, Lord Jesus. We rebuke, uh, we rebuke any uh, uh, deceit, Father, that the, the enemy would want to uh, sow into, uh, into our uh, learning and understanding and into our churches, Lord God. We just ask that you would have your way with tonight's study and with our lives, Lord. So uh, if you're watching this tonight, let me say this, you know, we may be closer than ever well, we are closer than ever to Jesus coming back. So if you're not sure that you're ready for that to happen, and maybe studying some of this dramatic stuff tonight has got you thinking about it and asking yourself if you're ready, you can know that you're ready right now. Just say this prayer with me. Say, Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you love me. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. Come into my heart and make me new. I believe that you rose from the dead on the third day, and because you live, I live. Thank you, Jesus. I put my trust in you to save me. I believe that you can save me, and I put my faith in you that you are able. And now I rest in that knowledge. In Jesus' name, amen. So I hope you guys have a good rest in that knowledge tonight. And we'll be back here next week for Revelation chapter 7. We love you guys. Have a great night. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he pour his favor and grace out upon you. May you walk in, in uh, the, the light of grace and prosper in all you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Good night, guys.